over the last few months, I've been working on a new project. I think that those of you who dig this show will dig that project. The idea is I would make a video journal of places I visit when I travel. I get to share some glimpses of people and things that I care about. Like most everything else I do, this is a completely DIY project held together with duct tape and good intentions. But uh, my buddy Todd Fox, who's been my best friend for about 30 years, now he's a really great photographer. He taught me a lot about photography back when. We decided we would try to use our photography skills to make videos. And so he's filmed some of the stuff. I've filmed the rest and I've done everything else on the thing. Had to learn how to do a lot of things. We'll try to make it as entertaining, thoughtful, and artful as we could. And it's just a way for me to hang out with my buddy, Todd, more than I get to, which that part's been really nice. I call it Old Weird America. Right now there are five episodes. That might be all I ever do. I might make a hundred of these, who knows. But this thing lives on YouTube. I haven't done much to promote it, so there's not a lot of attention it's getting, and that's fine. Sometimes you can do fun things when nobody's paying attention. I put it on my Facebook page. Probably the easiest place for you to go see it would be there. It's Otis Gibbs Music. There are five different videos. If you scroll down, you can watch them. People seem to be enjoying them quite a bit, so you know, hopefully you guys will enjoy it too. But just so that we're all on the same page and you guys understand where I'm coming from. You know, neither of us know anything about any of this. It's a ton of work. I'll probably lose a lot of money and maybe even make a fool of myself. But that's usually a recipe for something worthwhile. And those of you listening to this show know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that. This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Kenny Vaughn. Kenny is a great guitar player, great musician, and all-around good guy, and he's played on a lot of your favorite records. And you can find out everything you need to know about Kenny at facebook.com slash official. Sometime back in the 90s, I had a little bit of a collection of live shows, just a... Uh, I guess bootlegs i never paid anything for them but i would trade them with people you know friends of mine or somebody would give give one to me after a show and it seemed like some of the best ones all said live at ebbets field it was a venue in denver and i always wondered how those came about being and i got into a conversation with kenny and he said he was from denver and i asked if he had ever been to ebbets field and he said he used to hang out there all the time back in the 70s 
So, of course, I asked him if he would tell us a little bit about Ebbets Field, this mysterious place where all of these great recordings were made. This veered off of Ebbets Field a little bit and got into, uh, you know, more Denver in the 70s territory and stuff like that, but I really enjoyed it, and I think you guys will too. Here's Kenny Vaughn. Well, that's a problem because I went there so many times, I don't remember the first time I walked in the place. But I know I would have been uh, somewhat um, surprised at how small it was. And uh, they kind of had sort of like uh, uh, their own cheap version of stadium bench seats with little, uh, you know, like a a railing from the back of the bench in front of you where you could put uh, your drinks and stuff. And then there were some tables around the stage and um, I remember one time, one of my earlier visits, I went to see John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra. And, uh, and this was great. He walks out on stage, he's wearing all white, you know, and he says, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate you being here tonight. Um, I'd like to ask for you to refrain from smoking during our performance. And also would like to ask the waitresses to not serve any beverages while we are performing. You know, and uh, this place is tiny, and they have, you know, those guys played through um, 100-watt Marshall stacks, you know, all four of them. You know, the, Jerry Goodman, the fiddle player, had a 100-watt Marshall stack. John McLaughlin had one. Um, uh, the, the bass player had one. And um, Jan Hammer, the keyboard player, had one. And, and Billy Cobham had his giant vibes kit, you know. You know, double bass drum, you know, just, you know, loads of tom-toms and stuff. And so they, they sit down, and they proceed to just tear the place apart, you know. But the, the cool thing about it is they didn't ever hurt your ears, you know. They, they just raged like they did, but they would get down to, pl- to where you could hear a pin drop. They would play so quiet, you know. Billy's, you know, uh, you know his, his command of the of his hands and his feet were, you know, I don't know if you ever saw him do a drum clinic, but it was one of the most astounding things on earth is to watch Cobbin play the drum kit. And he could play so quiet and with such intensity and then just play so loud. And, and so it was like a roller coaster ride. But, but I remember, I, I was, you know, you look back to, to the 70s, you know, every place had smoke and a drink and there was no non-smoking. I mean, people <laughs> smoked on airplanes, you know. And, um, you know, that was the first time I ever saw anybody do that. And sure enough, you know, as soon as the, they, they took a break and I'm sure that everybody lit up and, and started drinking and then they came back and they, everybody took the cigarettes out and the waitresses went back to the little waitress station and back there. When I first realized there was an Ebbets Field, mm-hmm. I just remember there'd be a lot of live recordings, uh, bootlegs, whatever. Yeah, you call there it, was a around. there was a radio station called KFML, and KFML was uh, the you know the real uh, successful freeform FM station uh, that went on the air probably uh, uh, by by sixty nine for sure, maybe sixty eight, and uh, that was a big thing because we had the Denver University radio station. I knew most of those DJs, and you know, every DJ had his own kind of music that he played, you know, and 
And uh, I, I knew one of them so well that I could tell what kind of mood he was in by what he was spinning. <laughs> and I, I knew if he was playing a Joni Mitchell record, that means his latest girlfriend had broken up with him, you know, or whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I could, I knew these people. But uh, that, but KFML started doing simulcasts immediately from Ebbets Field, and I don't know how they managed to do this, but everybody that played there, 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 it was a simulcast, you know, and um, you could tape it. You know, right on the air. I mean, you would. I had this reel-to-reel tape recorder, and I would tape those things. You know, I remember uh, one, uh, the uh, uh, fourth version of King Crimson came through with Mel Collins on saxophone, Ian Wallace on drums, Boz Burrell, who later went to Bad Company on bass and vocals, and Robert Fripp on guitar, and they did a simulcast with a live audience, and it was a, just a monster performance. Of these guys and they didn't have their mellotrons with them so it was just saxophone guitar bass drum and a vocal mic and it was wicked performance they tore it to shreds man those guys were the drummer that was the most um uh jazz drummer they ever had ian wallace was the, the real he sounded like elvin jones man i mean he was a wicked guy he's he was a true jazz player and uh, that was a good simulcast but i listened to a lot of them you know the little feet i taped that one even though i was at the show you know i got somebody to turn the tape recorder on at at 8 30 or whatever you know <laughs> and and that was a good show i remember seeing tom waits john prine skinnard you know and, and you said something about the new york dolls the other day yeah i saw them there yeah i hung out with them were you hip to them before you went to the show? Oh yeah, I was hip to them from the second I heard about them. I bought their record that you know I, I had it within the week of its release. You know I was a big Dolls fan, and because uh, I read those magazines like uh, there was a there was you know you wouldn't have heard about those guys in Rolling Stone. You would have heard about them in uh, Cream and uh, Circus and Rock Scene and those kind of magazines. You know. But I had their records, you know. They, they were on their second album by the time um, uh, that, that that they hit Denver. It was too much too soon. That record had come out. It had been out for a while, actually. And uh, it was before Malcolm McLaren got a hold of him. It, so it was still the original five guys. And uh, it was quite a trip because uh, David, Joe, and Sylvain were real nice. Um, they were nice guys. And they invited us to their hotel afterwards. And Johnny and... And Jerry were um, uh, junkies, and I didn't know what was going on because they kept asking me for dope, and I was like, "Well, I can get some weed." Like, Fuck you! I don't want weed, man. And they they didn't want anything to do with me once they found out that it, I couldn't help them. Why? Well, I, I didn't know what they were talking about, man. And I was just a kid, you know. I was like, "Huh?" You know, and I was like, "Why are they sweating? Are those guys sick?" You know. They, but they were out in the Midwest, and they were, you know. They needed some help bad, and uh, Johnny had bought a, a a saxophone at a pawn shop, and he was walking up and down the hallway of the hotel, blowing it in a rather, you know, beginning beginner's fashion, <laughs> trying to play Charlie Parker sound and stuff, but it didn't quite sound like Charlie Parker. It was pretty funny. They were a mess, but. Uh, uh, I remember that David Johansson and Sylvain Sylvain were great guys, really nice dudes, really wonderful characters, and very uh, pleasant people to hang out with. Good guys. 
Did you ever meet any of those guys later on? Um, uh, Johnny Thunders uh, had a band called the Heartbreakers, and my um, rock and roll band from Denver that I had in the late 70s uh, opened for him quite a few times in Chicago and uh, New York. By then, I was a little bit more hip to his situation. He was, uh, you know, a, a really prominent junkie. You know, he was like a pro. And uh, but I remember one time he came in late to the gig, and he was like a little kid in, in the office of the guy who was running the club, and the guy was like reading him the riot act for being late, you know. And Johnny was like, you know, he looked like a million bucks, man. His he had great hair and great clothes and great shoes, you know, good Italian shoes. And uh, he looked. He, I, I was standing there next to him, and I was thinking, man, this guy really knows how to dress, man. This his clothes are magnificent, and he was like shuffling and looking at his shoes while he's talking to me he said man i just i was sorry i'm late man you know and <laughs> yeah because yeah. but he went out and get put on a great show they were really good heartbreakers were good that night did you ever mention that you guys had met no nope. no man i he didn't want to talk to me and um and i didn't bother him i it, this you know wasn't to be But, you know, Colorado was really cool all through the 70s, especially through, through like the 40s, 50s, and 60s and 70s. It was a good place. We had the Oxford Hotel downtown, which was this old hotel by the railroad station that had fallen into disrepair, and it was it became a folk singers uh, club. That was big in the 70s, so there was all these, you know, the, the Dirt Band lived in Colorado. All those guys would perform there regularly, and all your sort of uh, late 60s, early 70s singer-songwriters. I'm, I'm sure Prime played there a lot. Uh, you know, everybody played there. That was just, if you were a singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar, you played the Oxford Hotel. And it was, uh, we had a local scene, uh, Jimmy Ibbotson from the Dirt Band, who was a great singer-songwriter, uh, you, know, you know, very renowned amongst his uh, peers. Uh, he was a regular there at the bar and, and played a lot there. And there was a guy named Randy Handley that lives here. It was a great writer, great. Um, and I played down there a lot. There was a guy named Chuck Pyle, who was a great um, singer-songwriter that came to Nashville just a few times and didn't like it. And never. he just decided, I'm just going to stay out west and do my gigs, man. I got, no, I got no business doing what they do there. You know, he was a westerner. You know, he was a cowboy you know he liked um but he i remember seeing him for the first time in steamboat springs in like 1969 and i walked into a bar and he was on stage and i was like who the hell is this guy this guy's amazing but anyway the oxford hotel downtown was a real uh big sort of music scene place and then there was the denver folklore center which uh in the 60s was uh ground zero for everything well, they had a little performance hall there, and um, they would have blues, you know, acoustic blues musicians, acoustic folk musicians, uh, old-time music and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the people that ran that place were really cool. Um, they were like old commie folk guys, you know, from the, uh, from the Weaver days, you know, that, were, that had the Denver outpost. And Dylan came through Denver, before he went to New York. He actually, uh, w from Hibbing, he went to Denver and played at the Exodus 
and hung out at the folklore center and play, hung out at the satire lounge and the lion's lair and that's uh that's a famous old story you know that he was he i know a lot of people that not only saw him play but hung out with him and a lot of those guys were at the folklore center and there was a guy there named jeff cook who was a uh he was a younger guy who was hip to uh like what was going on in uh, the english blues scene and he was the guy that would uh, I would consult him before I bought a record in there. They they would import records from England and um, and France, and so um, I had access to a lot of records because of that place that I never would have had access to otherwise. And he would, you know, he helped me, you know, like he turned me onto the first Paul Butterfield album. And I knew who Mike Bloomfield was thanks to him. You know, way before they caught on. You know, it was like I got that record fresh off the press, you know, when I was like 11 or 12 or something, you know. And uh, so Denver had a scene, you know, and a lot of people hung out there. And, and of course, then when the hippie thing happened, uh, Dem Denver was like sort of hate Ashbury East for a while until the cops got heavy with the hippies and kind of um, started busting people a lot. We had a real... Um, the Denver police force was kind of brutal, but the Boulder um, people were real cool. The, the the Boulder police were nice, and so they kind of all the hippies kind of migrated from Denver in about '68, and went to Boulder because it was too rough in Denver. Because they didn't like people with long hair, and that was a problem for me. So. Well, it pretty much um, they really were as the movie depicts them, you know, and I figured that out the first time I ever met them, you know. I'd seen them at CBGB's earlier, and uh, but I'd never met them until I went back to the dressing room, just boldly kind of just decided I was going to go in there and talk to them, you know. And, uh, at Ebbets Field? Yeah, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I, you know, I mentioned to joey that i'd seen him play you know a couple of times at cbs you know the, like a, maybe a year or two earlier and that uh i've been following them and i had all the records and you know whatever you know i had a band and you know i i kind of dressed like they did anyway and um so they were very nice he was and tommy was um dd and johnny weren't very friendly um but uh joey was always a friendly guy i got to, and i Later on uh, in Chicago, um, we we took Joey to a party one night, much to Johnny's dismay. Johnny was really mad, and it was like, "You better have him back before two. You know, he was like, and jo Joey's like, "Don't listen to him." You know, <laughs> it was you know, it was weird. You know, it was like Johnny was never very much fun. But I think that they wouldn't have been so. Uh, successful had it not been for Johnny's, you know, rigid sort of, you know, he, he provided the business structure really for them to survive, you know. And I think Tommy was kind of that way too. You know, he was pretty down to earth, you know. And of course, he quit early on, you know. And they never were the same musically after Tommy departed. They were much louder and with with Mark Bell on drums than they were with Tommy. 
Tommy was almost like a surf drummer, really. I mean, you think about it, he didn't hit very hard. He was more like a surf player. Uh, that would have been uh, the third one, uh, Rocket to Russia, I think. That would have been right around there. Because they, they hadn't, because Mark Bell was was not in the band yet. It was still Tommy. So it was must have been Rocket to Russia. Were they really, really loud at Ebbets? At- no, they weren't. They sung, I mean, yeah, they were plenty loud, you know, but I don't remember them hurting my ears, you know. Now, that was a pretty good sounding room for whatever reason, for, you know, it being so small that it, it sounded fine. There's a lot of carpet on, the, on, on everywhere, you know, carpet on the walls. and you know. Shag carpet? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Multicolored shag carpet. Well, I, think I, read. I think it was red. I remember it being red. It was, a, you know, they actually it was a fine place. It wasn't a bad. It wasn't a dive. The two guys that ran it, um, David McKay and Chuck Morris, were pretty um, good businessmen, and uh, they knew what they were doing. They, they ran a tight ship. Chuck was crazy. He was, he was like Buddy Hackett on speed. He was really great, and uh, he's still that way. He's just not on speed. But, he, <laughs> but <laughs> good for him. When he quit taking drugs, I remember I was like, "Wow, you're no different. <laughs> you straightening up didn't affect you at all." <laughs> and he would just laugh, and then then you know, fire off a hundred one-liners in a row. He's a he's an amazing character. He's still out there. Oh, uh, let's see. I, I saw Martin Mull and his fabulous furniture. That was great. He had a CB, and he was calling people on the CB, trying to get them to come down to the show. <laughs> he he like had it hooked up to where he could have the conversation. And you could hear what the other person was saying. Yeah, you know, break a one nine, the whole deal. <laughs> it was really, it was real. You know, I thought at first, is this a joke? But it was, you know, it, he was he was really funny. He was great. You know, he's a good musician, and. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard his records, but uh, he was uh, he he had uh, a couple of records out, and they were really good. He was a good writer, really good writer, and they were you know a lot of humor, and um, he was a good guitar player, and he was a great performer. You know, he had this he had his living room furniture on the stage, and this uh, you know it was a whole gag that he had, but because he he had been on that. Uh, he was connected with that TV show Fernwood tonight, and um, and so he had a he was kind of he had a little bit of a tour there going for a while, and probably for a couple of years he toured. And I saw I saw that show there. You see Richard Pryor? No, I wish I would have. I have friends that went there. Yeah, I wish I would have seen that. My friends were Richard Pryor nuts. They could recite every single word on those records. I mean, they had him down, and I would have gone, but you know, wh- who knows what I I used to, I had to work. Um, I never had a job, so I was working like six nights a week in a country bar, playing country music because I didn't want to travel. I didn't want to go play Journey covers at a Holiday Inn somewhere in Nebraska. You know, <laughs> that didn't sound like fun to me. That's what my other friends were doing, and so I. I quickly realized I could just waltz down the street to the Oasis and play country music with a bunch of 50-year-old guys, you know, and I had a fake ID, so I was cool. And uh, 
I was making 40 bucks a night, you know? You know, make 240 bucks a week. Sleep in your own bed? Yeah. You know, I didn't have any bills. I didn't have, you know, my rent was dirt cheap. My phone bill was like, what, you know, 11 bucks a month or something crazy like that, you know? And that was it. I didn't have, I didn't have to pay for anything, man. So I, I, I was glad to do that. And so a lot of shows I did miss because of kind of work at night. I was playing at Freddy's Lounge on West Colfax one night and uh, with this blues band. And Willie was up at Red Rocks that night. And he showed up at our bar and sat in with us. And he got it there about eleven thirty, or and uh, and played with us till one thirty, and then he invited us out to his bus in the parking lot. And he had to sign autographs and stuff. Everybody was just like freaking out because it was kind of a dirt clod cowboy hippie bar, you know. And we were playing blues, you know, so it was probably about seventy five, seventy six, somewhere in there, and um, and it was cool, man. He walked up on stage. We gave him a Telecaster, and he sang nonstop for two hours, one song after the other, and we just held on, played behind him, you know. It was great, and people were going crazy. They couldn't believe it, and it was a fun night. That was the first time I ever was on one of those tour buses, you know. I was like, wow, I'm on on Willie Nelson's tour bus. I remember his sister was there with her little dog on her lap sitting in the front lounge, you know, and... We played just the stuff that he, you know, we probably did, if you got the money, I've got the time, you know, Lefty Frizzell. We did um, a bunch of his old country numbers, you know, and um, some bar band kind of stuff too, you know, some, I think he sang, I can't remember, it was like, it was a Wilson Pickett tune. I can't remember which one it was. It was either Mustang Sally or Midnight Hour, one of those kind of things, you know. Oh, he did it Willie style, you know. But he was doing all kinds of stuff, you know, dance tunes, whatever. He didn't, you know. I think any anything he touches turns into a Willie tune, you know. He's like John Prine. It doesn't matter if he wrote it or not. If if he's he starts singing it, he, you know, he makes it his own. A lot of people thought he wrote "Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain." You know, Fred Rose wrote that song. Was Willie clean cut at this time, or was he? No, he was full blown. Um, you know, bandana. He'd left Nashville by then. Oh yeah. He was, he was, he just played Red Rocks, you know, he was a star. He was big time, but you know, he's never been a big time in his own mind. Uh, The thing about him is he, if you're a homeless guy and or you're the president of the United States, he's going to treat you exactly the same. He doesn't care who you are. He he treats everybody the same, you know, he's, he's, not a not like most people. I should tell you my runaway story. The runaway story is pretty good. We, you know, the runaways released a record, and I had to go see this. You know, I didn't have the record, but I, I, I'd, I'd seen him on TV or something. I don't remember exactly. But I was aware of what I was going to see. And I'd held the record and looked at it, you know, and read the cover, you know, read the credits and looked at the pictures and stuff, but I didn't buy it. And uh, 
so I go down there to see the runaways with my friend, and <laughs> they, they weren't that bad, you know. They were okay, you know. They were kind of good, and and there was a service bar in the back of Ebbets Field by the dressing room, and if you walk through the door of that, it connected to the business next door, which was the Reese Coffee Shop, which was a 24-hour-a-day, 365 days a year open um, just you know, place where you could, where they had the lunch counter, where you could get eggs and, and hash browns and coffee, you know, any time of the day, twenty four hours a day. It was a chain, and um, and it looked, you know, it looked kind of like a Waffle House, you know, that kind of vibe, only, you know, sixties version. And um, so we always would go in there, get a cup of coffee, you know. And so we walked through there, and the place was empty except for the five runaways. Four of them were sitting in a booth, and Joan Jett was stretched out on the booth next to them. And the four were having an intense argument, screaming at each other. And Joan Jett looked like she wanted to die. And she, and we, so we sat at the at the counter right across from their booth, you know, ordered some coffee and eavesdropped on them. And you know, this it was hilarious, like these valley girls having an <laughs> argument. And they were like, you know, 17 years old or whatever, you know. It was, it was really dumb, you know. And um, it was really entertaining. And I, and I looked at Joan Jett, and she just looked at me, and she rolled her eyes like, God damn, get me out of here. You know, what am I doing with these idiots? And um, if I ever see her again, I'm going to tell her that story. <laughs> it was funny. There's a Utah Phillips song called Larimer Street. Oh, yeah, man. And, um, what a great song. And I found out it was about Denver. I lo- love the song, but yeah. it, it strikes my curiosity. What was Larimer Street like? Well, Larimer Street was Skid Row, and it was also populated by four blocks of pawn shops, you know, just one after the other. These old buildings, they were like two, two to three-story buildings, and um, the pawn shops were on the first floor, the business um, and they would have um, a basement too, you know, where they would have stuff down in the basement, just like just storage, you know. But there was, yeah. So I used to frequent about ten of those places. Starting when I was fourteen years old, my friends and I would ride the bus down there, and we just walk through the pawn shops every, you know, in the summertime we go on weekdays, in the wintertime we go on Saturday. And we went down there all the time, and there was just fabulous collections of old guitars and amps in there. And if I only would have known then what I know now, you know, I started go there, started going to those places in 1968, and um, it was pretty dark, and you know, it was really a heavy wino skid row kind of place. And the and the pawn shop guys were all Jewish and tough, you know, tough old Jewish guys, and. Um, they were always nice to us, you know, because they probably figured, hey, one of these days these guys are going to buy something, you know. And we did buy things occasionally, you know, if we could scrape together money. But we got some good guitars out of that place uh, somehow or other. I don't know how we ever came up with any bread whatsoever back then. But Well, what happened was uh, there was a thing called Urban Renewal. They decided to tear down Larimer Street and rebuild it into a a tourist attraction sort of kind of thing. 16th and Larimer was sort of a bad place, and they wanted to make it into a good place, so they just wiped it out, man. They just came through there and tore down all those buildings and then rebuilt 
um, sort of a nicer version, and uh, and it's still standing as it was rebuilt. And that was the end of those guys. They had to relocate, and so only the most successful guys um, relocated up on Broadway. They and they all were, you know, like Wedgels and Bobbies, and um, they were the two that really survived the two best places and uh i was wedgels was really a great place even in its newer location because it was still a real good pawn shop i mean it was it still had that vibe like they they were the only ones that made you still feel like you were on larimer street when you you went walked into their store they they took some of that old world vibe and that jewish uh businessman vibe to their new place and they survived another 20 years probably. And I bought some great guitars from those guys. Yeah, the one, one of the best things that ever happened to me was uh, two things. Um, my best friend's older sister was going out with a guy that ran the light show at the Family Dog, all ages hippie joint, you know. And so um, we would go in the back door with her because she was had you know access to the backstage and uh jim morrison and ray manzarek came walking in with their girlfriends you know and and, uh they were pretty young at the time i looked like ernie off of my three sons i was about 14 (laughs) and uh you know (laughs) you know and uh one of them says to me hey can you go get us a couple of cokes so i went down to the little fountain coke um, person, you know, where they sold M and M's and cokes and Seven Up, you know, in, in a little, you know, wax paper cup, you know, with ice and a straw. And um, so I got him two cokes and I came back up and gave them to him, you know, without saying anything. I just kind of looked at him, you know, and presented him with the cokes. And the, Ray was like, "Thanks, man," you know. And then he t- pulls out a little tiny bottle of whiskey and pours some into one, you know, a little bit into each coke and. They shared their cokes with their girlfriends, you know, <laughs> you know, with a straw, sipping a little whiskey and coke before the show, you know, and uh, backstage, not talking to anybody, like shy college kids, like almost like you know, they're kind of clean cut, you know. At that time, Jim was didn't have a beard, and he was wearing his black leather outfit with a white frilly fluffy shirt, you know, and he he looked pretty good, you know, and Ray was, you know dressed real nice and just clean cut and uh you know and they went out and did their show they were great really good a a stark contrast to the other la band on the show captain beefheart who were dressed like gangsters they all had uh they they were dressed like you know they looked like they were came out of a jimmy cagney gangster movie you know they all had like zoot suits and hats and shit on you know ties and they were they were still the L.A. Sunset Strip blues band that they started out being, you know. Was it great? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The captain was great. He had that stage presence, you know. Yeah, that voice. And, you know, blowing the harmonica and singing like Helen Wolf, you know. Wow, he was something else. And that band was tight, man. They were really good. That was the first band the one that made safe as milk. Oh, there was a huge chasm because it, you know, the closing of 
Ebbets Field, sort of for me, I could see um, what, you know, I got this hint that things were changing in Denver and that things were kind of going south. And, you know, Denver had this wonderful, vibrant jazz scene in the, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And by the 70s, it was, I could see it starting to change, you know. I, there was a couple of places that had jazz, and um, I remember seeing uh, Jack McDuff at this little place called Emerson Street East on East Colfax, Colfax, and there was like nobody in there, man. It's Jack McDuff. I, I sat like three feet away from him and watched him play from behind so I could watch his, his fingers and his feet playing the bass. You know, I was like, I got to watch how this guy does this bass thing on that organ, you know. Is he using his feet? Is he using his fingers? And he was doing both, you know. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the, there was a vibrant jazz scene there. And uh, by the middle of the 70s, I could sense it was going away. And then by the beginning of the 80s, it had really sort of become like something else that I, couldn't relate to it was more of a fusion jazz kind of thing had taken over but the the great jazz era was coming finally over you know and the fusion era had come in and i was a big fan of weather report you know i could accept their version of what they were doing i like that in fact i still like everything that they ever put out but like then it was like spirogyra and that kind of stuff and i couldn't go with that i couldn't swallow that pill you know it was like no no i'm not good i'm not down with this 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 isn't doesn't sound like jazz to me you know it's something else it's like pop music or something it's not it doesn't sound like it's supposed to weather report was acceptable i like them they i still like their records but you know they they get lumped into the fusion category um and uh you know, I don't know. I could just see that things were starting to change. And when Ebbets closed, it was there was still a lot of good places to go see music, but that was a, a really big um, closing because you know that there was no um, you know they would they would book anybody in there if they knew they were going to fill, fill the two hundred and thirty two seats, you know, and, and command a good price at the door for them, you know. And it, it, so you would see great jazz acts, great rock and roll acts, great folk acts. You would see it all, you know. And I saw Kinky Friedman in there, you know. I saw, uh, you know, McCoy Tyner in there. I saw... Sleep at the Wheel. I did see a Sleep at the Wheel in there, yeah. Commander Cody. Yes, I saw Commander Cody a lot. They played around Boulder all the time. I think one time... I rented Bill Kirchin an amplifier. Uh, the club owner called me up and said, "Hey, uh, I got Commander Cody in here, and they, their amplifier is not working. Will you bring that Fender amp down?" I said, "Sure, man." And you know, I don't think I even collected on it. I, they just gave me free tickets, and I hung out with those guys. And that was the first time I really got to meet Bill, and uh, I'm still friends with him to this day. But. Uh, they were great. They played around there a lot, in Boulder especially. They, they were regulars. They must have played Boulder as many times as the Grateful Dead did, you know. Man, I really appreciate you sharing stories. Sure. And coming over here. My pleasure. Well, it was a great place back then. I miss it because it's not like that now. Whatever is going on there now, is, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. 
My Denver is long gone. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Kenny for coming over here to my living room in East Nashville and sharing stories. You can find out everything you need to know about Kenny at facebook.com slash Kenny Vaughn official. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you could buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at OtisGibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.